with this gadget. As Andy said, we're starting a new series this week. Okay, that one got really excited. Yeah! <laughs> we had a series over the, the summer looking at some different practices that help us engage with God. And kind of September and into October, just kind of following this theme that we've had since the beginning of January, this idea of kind of renew, this feeling that we felt that God was sent to us a church to renew. And, uh, and in September, we got this phrase kind of back to basics. Just looking at the book of Nehemiah, and the book of Nehemiah is a story about building, uh, a person that had a mission to restore this war that was going to get built up. And you're going to hear more about that in kind of coming weeks. But we want to just kind of delve into this book and look about what we can learn. What is God saying to us individually? What is he saying to us uh, corporately? So just going to give you a little bit of a backdrop. Some of you might be familiar with this. But there's a context, and I'm going to show you this nice little table. I don't normally do tables. Can you see that all right? If, if I read it from there, I can't read it. From, I can read it from there, but not from there. I should need to look around. But the kind of context of this story was that uh, Israel had been overrun, and then there was this place called Judah. And um, Nebuchadnezzar, this king, came along, and he destroyed um, Jerusalem, he knocked it down, he knocked down the walls, he knocked down the temple, uh, and he just kind of burnt it, uh, burnt it to a, a, a crisp. You can keep making your way, Judas. Judas is going to come and read in a minute for me. And, um, and, they, and it, most of the Israelites had been taken into captivity. And then there began to be um, a first lot of people that began to return. And you, you get various books in the Bible. We're focusing in on, on the book of Nehemiah. But there's a couple of other books. If you have more time, you might want to look at because they give you a little bit of a context. And one of those is Ezra. One of them is Esther. In the book of Ezra, we begin to hear the story about the, the captives beginning to come back. And these guys go back, and they begin to kind of rebuild the temple. Um, and they try to rebuild the walls, but it doesn't happen. And some more kind of exiles begin to come back. We read a little bit about that in Ezra chapter 7 uh, to chapter 10, the second return of Jews from the Babylonian exile. But again, the temple has been built, but the walls haven't been restored. And that's kind of the context of this story. And I'm just going to hand over to Judith just to read from Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah, first chapter. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel, of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, 
I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps your cover, his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave to your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. Thank you very much, Judith. So there we have kind of Nehemiah chapter one. Let me just see if I got. Let's go back. I know what I do. And um, particularly, I want to just focus in on this verse in Nehemiah chapter one, verse four. Where it says, "When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted, and I prayed before the God of heaven." And so, in the previous kind of verses. And Nehemiah is getting this report about what's happening back in Judea, back in Jerusalem, in his home kind of country. And um, this idea of kind of the walls being broken down. And so it's not just in the sense of the physical walls being broken down and all that symbolizes. Because if your walls are broken down, you are defenseless. You are at the mercy of everybody else. But there's also this kind of underlying kind of, kind of language we get in the Hebrew, this idea of... The wars being down, it kind of means trouble. There's a sense of disgrace. There's a sense of shame. You know, you're not a proper city if you haven't got your wars. And there's kind of been, like I said in the previous diagram, 13 years gap. And nobody had really done anything or attempted anything to get these walls rebuilt. People had begun to get settled. They'd begun to begin to live their lives with the walls down. This kind of idea where nothing's going to change or and just happy as things are. But Nehemiah, in hearing this news, was moved. It bothered him. 
It wasn't just a kind of mental ascent of all the walls are down. It began to impact his heart. I don't know if you ever had one of these kind of moments of truth. I'm kind of moment maybe that will kind of define you. Where you can, your need to act outweighs just the comfort of inactivity. And I think for Nehemiah, he kind of came to that place. The Israelites there had kind of become content. They'd kind of begun to accept this war was going to be down. Maybe the thought is always going to be that way. Nothing's ever going to change. We're always going to be defenseless at the mercy of everybody else. You know, they'd been encouraged, they'd been challenged again and again. If you read through some of the other books that we find in what's called the Old Testament, you hear prophets just challenging them to rebuild it. But they hadn't done anything. Whatever reason, maybe anxiety, maybe fear, they hadn't done anything. But Nehemiah begins to make it personal. You know, he didn't make any excuses. You know, it had been quite easy for him to think, well, here I am. Um... He was kind of like in far off kind of Babylonia, which is kind of like modern day Iraq. And it could have gone, you know, it's kind of far away. There's no kind of plane. There's no kind of road to get there. It's their problem. It's not my problem. Uh, it's not my issue. He could have quite easy thought, you know, I'm not a professional. I mean, that had been quite an easy excuse for me to make. If you know anything about me, I'm terrible at DIY. Every skill, every gene of DIY went fully and totally into my brother who can do everything. And I can't do anything. And he'd be like, I'm not a builder. That's not my skill. You know, call a builder. Call an architect. This is not what I can do. But without kind of ruining the story, you might kind of guess. uh, But he managed to rebuild the wall. He managed to do in 52 days what nobody had been able to do in 90 years. But it started in this place where he heard these things and he began to weep. And I think there's a lot that we can learn from it. One of the things that I love is I love reading kind of autobiographies and um, biographies. I tend to do one of three things. One's just to do with people who follow Jesus. I love stories, particularly in the sense of learning about leadership by reading books of kind of managers. And, um, and lastly, I just love explorers. I love geography and people that go to kind of remote places. But pretty much with all of those, but particularly those who have been called by God into certain areas, they kind of go through one of these moments where just something just impacts them. You see it more kind of in the Bible as well. There's a story, for example, of Moses where he sees the captivity of the Israelites and he goes, you know what, I'm not happy with this. And he tries to do something in his own strength and then God comes along and tells him there's a better way of doing that. You might be familiar a little bit with kind of, um, I guess, British history slave history, but a guy called William Wilberforce, who was an MP. I don't know if you've ever seen the film. I can't remember what the film's called, actually. But it's a great film to watch. But as part of that, he's kind of trying to figure out, like, what am I here for? You know, I'm an MP. I've got position of power. There's so many different things I could get involved with. But at some point, when he began to hear about slavery, he's like, I want to be part of that solution. He began to mourn about it. One of the things very close to my heart, those who know me in this church, is kind of overseas work. And there was somebody called William Carey many years ago in a Baptist church. And he's like, why should all these people get an opportunity to hear about God? And there's loads of people out there who have never heard about God. And again, you kind of read different stories. You know, people that set up orphanages, just um, businesses that bring transformation. Just 
it doesn't matter where you are. At some point, when you're reading those books, at some point you get to a chapter where there's something that begins to just cause them to kind of sit down and begin to weep and begin to mourn. So, yeah, let's get kind of personal. What does that mean and look like for us? You know, what, what breaks your heart? What is God breaking your heart about? If we were studying the tables like we were doing the previous weeks or the summer, I'd say break down, but maybe over a meal, maybe with some friends. What's breaking your heart? What bothers you? What gets to you? And, and firstly, I want to just say some things about that. You know, when I talk about mourning, like I said already, it's not just to do with a kind of brokenness and acknowledgement of something that needs change. But the question is, is it not just going to impact our heads, but is it going to impact our hands? Is it going to impact our feet? Is it going to impact our, our wallets? You know, is it enough to cause us to do something? Because of my position in the church, not just let alone over the last couple of, of months in, um, as I'm doing Nigel and Joe's sabbatical and covering for them, but over the last few years I've been working for here, people often come to me and say, do you see this or do you see that? Or what's the church doing about this? What's the church doing about that? And it reminds me of a story of um, John Wimber. John Wimber was the person who set up the vineyard movement. And he tells a story where a man came to him and said, what are you doing about the homeless on the streets that are outside our church building? And John Wimber just turned to him and said, what are you doing about it? And he's kind of said, well, what, what do you mean? What's, you know, what's the church doing about it? And he goes, is this your church? And he goes, yes. So he said, well, what are you doing about it? And so I throw that out as you begin to mourn this idea, what's God laying in your heart and taking personal responsibility for it? Secondly, you get people who tend to be the other way. I think um, my wife Katie's good at this, where she just takes on everything. She becomes aware of all these different situations, all these things that need fixing, where there's brokenness around, and tries to fix all of them. And there is loads of things. If you look around... There's homelessness, there's issues to do with prisons, there's issues to do with trafficking, there's issues to do with people being in, in poverty, orphans, widows, youth, children, I mentioned this morning, elderly, um, working in countries where people don't know about Jesus. The list can go on and on and it can become very overwhelming. But at some point, we need to know what is it God wants us to really mourn about in such a way that affects us? There's one thing about mourning about it, praying about it, handing it over to God. But what does God want us to hold on to, to pray into, to be the solution to? It's that verse I mentioned earlier in relation to Chris um, from a book kind of written roughly at the same time as Nehemiah from Esther. For such a time as this, for such a time as this, you are here. What is it that you are here for? A Baptist minister many years ago, I think it was Baptist, my apologies if it wasn't, but Alan Redpath said this, recognition of need must be followed by earnest, persistent waiting upon God until the overwhelming sense of world need becomes a specific burden in my soul for one particular piece of work which God would have me to do. So what he's saying is you can see all these different needs. We can sit down. You can brainstorm. It doesn't take much effort sometimes to know some of these things. But what is it that God has for you to do? What is it, going back to that verse, that we're going to press into and mourn and fast and pray into? 
So for me, for example, for those who know me, one of those answers is Muslims. Over 20 years ago, God just began to impact Katie myself, and I just looked and thought, it's not fair. You know, that literally one out of 100 people that goes and works overseas goes to the Muslim world. That only 0.01% of money given towards mission work goes towards those who go and work in the Muslim world. And for me, that kind of what began to grip my heart. That was the thing that I began uh, to mourn about. One of the other things I've just been thinking about recently, uh, on and off, but again, uh, in this kind of season, is as a church, I want to see more people coming to Jesus. You know, just... When we do baptisms, I love, when we do baptisms, we don't do them that often. And uh, I would say most times when people get baptized, it's the youngsters in our church. And I celebrate that. It's great that they're making a choice to follow Jesus. But I look around and I think, where are those who kind of come along and say, I didn't know Jesus? And that's something that's just beginning to break my heart. The same with um, signs and wonders. I'm just like, you know what? I haven't seen things I wanted to see yet. When was the last time I saw a blind person see the deaf here? And so I'm just sharing from my heart. These are some of the things for me. I'm not saying these are the things necessarily be for you. You should be praying about some of these things as a follower of Jesus. But there'll be certain things that God should be stirring your heart on. And it's like, what is that? What is it going to look like? And so as you look in that verse, it says he mourned and he prayed and he fasted. Our first response should be to pray and fast. It's very easy just to stop with the morning, and to, but to pray and fast. And he did this for a prolonged period of time. So firstly, fasting. I'm not going to say a lot on fasting. Uh, not that we're afraid to speak on fasting, because we have a series in November on fasting. Fasting and feasting, and, uh, which I'm really pleased about. And it kinda, uh, I will share more in that series. But as some of these things have been on my heart... It's like, if I want to see a breakthrough, I want to see a change, I need to begin to pray and fast more. I know for the Muslim world, uh, there's a kind of desire amongst mission organizations to see 10% of the Muslim world come to Jesus in 10 years. This was started about four or five years ago, so we've got about another five years just to see that happening. And it's just regular prayer and fasting. And I began just to press into that because as I read scripture and I read church history, it often seemed to be that that would cause change wasn't just prayer, but it had fasting kind of connected to it. It's like it supercharged the, the prayer. There's a famous story, which I'm sure we'll look at in November, where the disciples tried to cast out a demon, and um, they, you know, they said, we tried everything. And Jesus said, bottom line was, this only comes out through prayer and fasting, this kind of combination. And so we need to begin to fast, and we'll look at that more and we're going to invite us as a church to take a time of fasting, whatever that looks like for us individually. But we need something. We don't just fast. That's one of the things we will say. You don't just fast for the, just the sake of fasting. People don't generally jump up and down and go, yeah, I want to fast. Uh, I don't know. Well, maybe you do. But um, normally it's because something begins to break in you and you say, enough is enough. I want to see something change. Prayer and fasting. But I'm going to just focus in uh, kind of on the prayer bit. And there's a couple of verses there. Firstly, 2 Chronicles uh, 20, verse 12. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. And I'm just going to say a little bit more about that, particularly in relation to some of the stuff that um, 
particularly Andrew, just felt that God wanted you know, to do with us this morning. Because this context of that story is there's a king called Hezekiah. And he's surrounded, so this is actually going back to the days pre-Nehemiah. He's kind of surrounded by an army of the Syrians. And the Syrian king sends him a letter and really saying, like, surrender. Letter is just going to destroy your place and take you into exile. But we, uh, but we won't kill you. That's good news. And um, Hezekiah just kind of gets this letter and he takes it and he places it before God. And he kind of comes out with this kind of famous line. He goes, we do not know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. And that's when we begin to mourn about stuff. This is where we need to start. But I feel this morning, I want to just stress, this wasn't originally my notes, but as I was just uh, listening in worship, I think that can apply to many situations that we're in. We sang that song about our focus being in on God. I think there's many people, and we're going to have an opportunity later just to pray for each other, who are saying, I do not know what to do. You know, you could picture that letter for a whole load of things. For some of you, actually, I think it's a literal letter. It's a bill. And you're like, I don't know what to do. For some of you, it's a situation in your family situation, work situation, and you're going, I don't know what to do. But there's a crucial bit there. It says, but. They always say in the Bible, notice when you see buts and ifs. And so what's going to come next? But your eyes are upon you. That is where we need to start. That's where we need to continue to get our eyes upon God. And so that's one thing. The other verse there is, is a well-known verse. Deuteronomy Chronicles 7, 14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, and I will forgive their sins, and I will heal their lands. So Nehemiah would be aware of these verses. These verses were written um, before his time. And so he's going to, in this situation, and he sees this mess, he sees this brokenness, he sees this shame, and he, he knows from Scripture the thing to do is to pray and to fast. And so he begins this prayer, and I'm going to, we, we, and Judith read it. You might want to look at it again in Nehemiah 1. But there's just a few things I want to just bring out from it. Firstly, it just begins with this kind of this praise. Just kind of calling out, declaring the nature of God. You know, you are the Lord God of heavens, the great and an awesome God. You know, it begins to focus in on God. And that's so crucial. Like I said, it's very easy to look at these things before us and to get overwhelmed. I don't want us to to do that. One of the things I do, particularly in relation to praying for the Muslim world, is I have a phrase, which is, look up before you look out. And so whenever I'm doing a prayer time for the Muslim world, and often when I'm running prayer meetings in the church, I have a time where I begin just by, let's just begin to declare the names of God. Not just because it's vain repetition, but what those names mean and they represent. I have on my playlist what I call up songs. These are songs that are focused in on the nature and the character of God. Because I remember seeing from many years ago when I was a child, there's a guy called F.B. Myers, and he said, faith fries when God occupies the whole vision. And sometimes I can look at this issue, and it can become like overwhelming, and I need to just get my focus in on God. I do not know what to do, but my eyes are on you. And so that's what it begins to do. It begins to call on the nature of God, who he is. 
Because that just begins to release faith. That begins to begin to give us perspective. That's why I always say look up before you look out. It's a great way to start and do, do life. And then it just begins to kind of petition God as it says there, please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant which I pray before you day and night. So immediately just following praise, Nehemiah tells God his request, kind of pay attention to him. We kind of know that God is kind of always there. But as soon as I think we need to just remind ourselves, there's an urgency about it. Thirdly, he begins just to confess. Like I said, he probably knew verses like 2 Chronicles 7 verse 14. You know, if my people who are called by my name will humble myself and pray and cry out to me, I will heal the land. And he also would have known from some of the stories and some of the verses in the prophets, like Isaiah, who had said, you know, if people repent, then a remnant. I will bring people back. I will restore And so he begins just to remind God of his promises. So in verses 8 to 9, it says, Remember the instructions you gave your servant Moses. It's not like God forgets. But he's just going to restate in this. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you amongst the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if you're exiled people in the furthest horizons, which as far as they were concerned, Babylonian would be, I will gather them from there and bring them back to the place I've chosen as a dwelling for my name, which for them would be Jerusalem. This idea of scattering, gathering. And, and so Nehemiah begins just to kind of, kind of confess, but then he begins to remind God. He appeals to the promises to God, to the plans of God, to the history of God in his redemptive history. There's a whole load of verses. I don't know which ones that... Nehemiah used. We don't know if this is just kind of like a summary of his prayer or his, solely was his prayer. But he is reminding God of who he is. Now, what does that look like? Maybe make it more practical by drawing from my example. A couple of things that I draw upon. And some of you might know that not all my family are following Jesus at the moment. And that pains me much. And so one of the verses I keep going back to is Joshua 24, verse 15. Me and my household will serve the Lord. And I keep coming back to that verse. Sorry. And John 10, 28. You know, none can snatch from his hand, and I say that over my children. They might look like they're beyond his hand, but their arm the Lord is not too short to save. And verses like these, these are the ones I, I go back to. Those who don't know, I used to work in the Middle East, uh, particularly kind of in Egypt. And there's a passage people always go back to. It's Isaiah 19, the highway of righteousness. And there in that passage, it says really, without giving you a geography lesson, everywhere from Egypt to Iraq, there'll be people that follow God. And we just go back to that. And one of the verses in my work, which I, I, I love, is Revelation 7, verse 9. It says, After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They are wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And so these are the promises I hold on to when I pray for the nations. So as a team I oversee in Egypt, they're working amongst the CY people. There's not one follower of Jesus at the moment. Sinai Bedouin, not one yet follower of Jesus. Nubians, there are a few. 
And Delta Gypsy is not yet one follower of Jesus amongst them. And I cry out to these passages because it says there, not just that there'll be one person, but it says there'll be multitudes. And so in my mind, there'll be multitudes of sea winds, multitudes of Sinai Bedouin, multitudes of Nubians, Delta Gypsies that will be following God. These are the verses that I go back to and I declare because I look at the history of God and it's like, you came for God so loved the world. So I'm just giving you from my personal example, these are things that I go back to. Even in relation to what I said, there's stuff I want to see happen more in our church and sense of signs and wonders. John 14 verse 12 says, we will do greater works. These are the things that I go back to. And so as you begin to get things that you're praying in and breaking into, you need to have verses, promises from God, things that you need to anchor yourself into as you begin to pray. And lastly, it just has a very specific um, prayer right to the end. It says, give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I'm not going to ruin Anna's talk. He's speaking next week. We all get to see who this man is in greater detail that he's going to speak to in, in chapter 2. But he kind of like anchors it in reality. Like I said before, it's not meant to just be sinking your head, hypothetical, but you've got to put feet and hands to it. He's not just filling the skies with words of prayer. He knew he needed to act at some point, take a step of faith. Kind of in my work, I kind of found often two things, and as soon as I find I drift into one of these. I have found people who think they can do it without God and don't pray, and I'm talking about Christians here. And then I find people that hide behind prayer. Um, and so when they talk about praying for something, and I'm like, well, you're praying for this nation. When are you going to go and share? And they'll go, I'm a prayer. I'm not denying some people have a specific call to prayer but sometimes we have to be at the answers to our prayers. And so he was not one or the other. He prayed. He's like, I can't do this without you. But at the same time, it's like, I know that I need to step out. It's a time to pray, and there's a time at some point I'm going to have to step out and do something. We see this in chapter 2. And so he, he steps out. And then he finishes with this little line. Kind of let's tag on. Palmy's going to like... Maybe it should be underneath chapter 2, but it's underneath chapter 1, so that's my responsibility. And it says, I was a cupbearer to the king. And again, this might be something that comes up next week, but Nehemiah was kind of living, like we said, overseas. It was kind of in the empire of the Babylonians. He was a cupbearer, which meant really, bottom line was, he's really, really important. The cupbearer's job was to kind of drink and eat everything the king was going to have before he had it. And so you really had to trust that person because you didn't want him to kind of like eat it, go, it's okay, and then slip some poison in, and then the king was dead. You know, he was somebody who had position. You know, maybe he would put it in our English language. He had a cushy job. He was all right. He was kind of sorted for life. He would have a good pension, wonderful life. Yet God was beginning to lay something on his heart. And he was beginning to pray about it because he realized mourning and fasting and praying is where we start. And you have to keep on doing that, but that's not necessarily where you finish. He knew at some point he was going to have to do something. And that's a lot of what we see in the rest of Nehemiah. Was it a costly sacrifice? You could argue yes and no. Yes, he had to give up all the comforts that he enjoyed. And endure probably a lot of hardship. We know in the latter chapters he gets mocked. 
gets criticized, gets all this extra hassle he might not have had if he hadn't stepped out and obeyed. But in some ways, it wasn't a sacrifice because he knew he could no longer be happy doing what he was doing. He was going to find greater joy in doing what God wanted him to do. Like Paul, there's a, a verse in Philippians where it says, I count everything rubbish so I may gain Christ, Philippians 4. And, um, and so what is that going to look like for us? So I just got a quote, uh, a guy called Jim Elliott, and he, he kind of came up with this quote um, many years ago. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Um, Jim Elliott and his four friends and were all killed in Ecuador in 1956. And in some ways, you could look at him, and at the time, it made the Times news, main news at the time, was like, these people have just wasted their lives. You know, fresh out of university, their lives before them. All the opportunity that they had, and you could say the same about Nehemiah, but it's like, no, there's something better, there's something greater. And so, it wouldn't be me if I didn't throw out a challenge at the end. What does, what does it look like for us? Maybe you had two questions. It's like, what is God breaking your heart? Or what should be breaking your heart? What's the specific theme for you? And secondly, what's going to be the cost? What's that going to look like for you? And so we're just going to move into time of communion, which might sound kind of weird, kind of like just talk about this. We're jumping into communion. But in some ways, I was thinking about communion, and it's to do with mourning. You see, when we read the story of the Bible, starting right in Genesis, we're told that God made a place called the Garden of Eden. And uh, he made this kind of couple, Adam and Eve. He wanted to have fellowship with them. He wanted to live with them. Things were going to be perfect. And then, I'm not going to give you a whole history of things, but sin came into the world. And that broke God's heart. And he wanted to do something about it. So in some ways, as I was thinking about community,